0: If you would turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning at verse 18, as we read from the New King James translation, the writer is the Apostle Paul, who here reminds us, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. For Jews request a sign, and Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, to the Jews a stumbling block, and to the Greeks foolishness, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. If we go back to the Old Testament, we see something that ties in with the thoughts of these verses we have just read from 1 Corinthians. And that's Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9, where the prophet Isaiah, through the prophet, God reminds us, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts." The point of these passages is that God does not always work in the way that, perhaps from a human perspective, we might expect Him to work or expect Him to operate. God's ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than ours. The passage from 1 Corinthians chapter 1 reminds us that to many, in fact, tragically to most, the message of the cross, as the New King James renders it, is foolishness to those who are perishing. And there are a great many people who cannot understand why the cross is so significant or why would God use that means to bring about the salvation of mankind. What, why the gospel? Why the preaching? Why not something else? All of this reminds us of that which I would like for us to look, at which I'd like for us to look today, and that is simply this. I want us to think about the power of God today, but... The power of God in some peculiar places, especially as we consider those places from a purely human perspective. How has God demonstrated his power? And through what means at times has God chosen to demonstrate that power or to work through certain things in order to achieve his purpose? Things that in the mind of man might be, not just insignificant, but from a human perspective, foolishness. The foolishness of God, the Scripture says, is wiser than men. God is not foolish at all. But God has chosen to work at various times in various ways that seem, as we said from a human perspective, to be somewhat peculiar. Think with me, first of all, about the power of God in a staff. Go back to Exodus. In Exodus chapter 4, we see the power of God, yes, in a staff. That is, in a shepherd's staff. In Exodus chapter 4, of course, as Moses is appearing before the burning bush, and God is about to commission him on a vitally important mission. He and Aaron would ultimately, of course, be involved in leading the way in freeing the people of God from the bondage of Egypt. And as God appears to him in Exodus chapter 4 as a part of that, Moses is answering in one of his excuses that he makes and one of his objections that he raises in verse 1, But suppose they will not believe me, or listen to my voice. Suppose they say, The Lord has not appeared to you. So the Lord said to him, verse 2, what is that in your hand? And he said, the New King James renders it, a rod. The English Standard Version says a staff. It was a staff, a shepherd's staff, a rod, a shepherd's rod. And he said, cast it on the ground. So he cast it on the ground. It became a serpent, and Moses fled from it. Then he told him to reach out his hand and take it by the tail, and he did, and it became a rod in his hand. God proceeded to tell him this would be the mechanism, if you will, a simple staff, a shepherd's staff, through which God would demonstrate His power on more than one occasion. Why? Why a shepherd's staff? Well, it's not ours to reason why. Ours is just simply to do what Moses ultimately was willing to do after he had offered some excuses to God for not going and for not doing, but... He ultimately did. Now look over at verse 17. It was Moses' staff initially, but now look at verse 17. You shall take this rod in your hand with which you shall do the signs. That's establishing clearly that the rod, the staff was to be used in demonstrating the power of God. No question about it. Now verse 20. Then Moses took his wife and his sons and set them on a donkey and he turned to the land of Egypt. Now listen to this. And Moses took the rod of God in his hand. That's significant. What is that in your hand was the initial question. It's a staff, it's a rod, it's mine. Not anymore. Not after God had designated that this would be the means by which he would demonstrate his power and ultimately lead his people through the Red Sea to safety on the other side. No, it has now become the rod of God. And of course, if you read the account, you see that it was used just as God had told Moses to use it. Then we turn over to Exodus chapter 14 and verse 16. And of course now they are at the Red Sea, seemingly trapped there for a period of time because the Egyptian army is bearing down on them and the people of Israel do not see any way out and they begin to murmur and complain at that very point in time. But Moses tells them in verse 14, the Lord will fight for you and you shall hold your peace. In other words, be quiet. And the Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the children of Israel to go forward. Look at verse 16. But lift up your rod and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, and the children of Israel shall go on dry ground through the midst of the sea. Then look over to verse 21. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. Was the rod in it? Well, of course it was. Verse 17 is established, or verse 16 established that it would be because God told him to do that. Use this staff. Use this staff. Hold it in your hand and what? Stretch it out. Moses did and the Lord caused the sea to go back by strong east wind all that night and made the sea into dry land and the waters were divided. Do we read anywhere that Moses questioned God as to the use of a simple shepherd's staff In order to carry about, carry on his work and to ultimately carry out his mission in the deliverance, the greatest deliverance before Calvary that has ever been effected, the deliverance from Egypt. And yet a simple shepherd's staff was the thing that God chose through which to demonstrate his power. Anywhere do we read that Moses said, I do not, I don't understand. Why can't I just lift my hands? What is, what's the significance of this staff? I've had it for some time. It's been mine for a long time, but God said, no, now it's mine. Yeah, well, it's still yours, but it's also mine. It's now the staff of God. And who would contend that if Moses had reasoned that the staff was unnecessary to the carrying out of God's mission, and that he had simply tried to carry out everything he did before Pharaoh and in the parting of the Red Sea without that rod, who believes the sea would have parted? I don't. I don't. And yet, one can never explain the logic or the reasoning behind the use of that staff, other than to say, God said it, and that was sufficient for Moses. And he did it, and the waters parted. Now let's come to the power of God in a serpent. In Numbers chapter 21... In Numbers chapter 21, after that great deliverance had taken place, you have the people of God, as they were prone to do, murmuring on one of the many occasions in which they did murmur. They journeyed, verse 4, as we look at it, from verses 4 through 9. They journeyed from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom, and the soul of the people... Became very discouraged. The idea here is they were grieved. They were grieved. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water. And our soul loathes this worthless bread. Can you imagine that statement? That was the manna from where? Heaven. And they said our soul loathes this worthless bread. The bread that God had given them. What an attitude. No wonder then, no wonder then that verse 6 tells us what it does. So the Lord said, sent fiery serpents among the people, that is poisonous snakes, and they bit the people, and many of the people of Israel died. Therefore the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people, then the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole and it shall be that everyone who is bitten when he looks at it shall live. Oh, how many lessons there are there for us that time doesn't permit us to go into in terms of how this serpent typifies, and we'll talk a little bit more about that later, typifies the lifting up of the Son of God on Calvary. And the specific instruction was what? Whoever looks on the serpent that Moses erects, will live. It was a look and live proposition. Don't look, don't live. It was just that simple. And yet the reasoning behind that would have been very difficult to have ascertained from a human perspective. Why does God need a brazen serpent built by Moses for us to look at that in order to live? Why can't God just heal me where I am based upon the faith that I have. No, that would have not been faith. That kind of reasoning would not have been a demonstration of faith. The demonstration of the faith that enabled them to be saved was the faith that looked in order to live. They had to look in order to live. And what a beautiful illustration it is of the inefficiency of faith only. The idea that belief alone will save today. It never has. It never has, and it never will. And this is a demonstration of that. The power of God in a brazen serpent on a pole? The reasoning simply would not have been there from a human perspective. But I'll guarantee you, I don't don't read of anyone saying, I'm sorry, but I have too much faith in order to look at that thing. Those who looked, those who looked lived. And verse 9 indicates that everyone who had bitten, they were willing to look. So Moses made a bronze serpent, put it on a pole, and so it was if a serpent had bitten anyone when he looked. It doesn't say if he looked. The indication is if he was bitten and he heard the instructions, he looked. He would have been very foolish not to have done so, wouldn't he? He lived. He lived. The power of God in a staff, a shepherd's staff, yes. The power of God in a serpent, a bronze serpent, yes. But now let's move to the book of Joshua. And let's see the power of God in another very peculiar place or manner, and that is the power of God in a shout. The power of God in a shout. That's Joshua chapter 6, and you're very familiar with the account. Obviously, it is the taking of the city of Jericho. And verse 1 tells us, Now Jericho was securely shut up because of the children of Israel. None went out, and none came in. But now notice verse 2. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand its king and the mighty men of valor. But then that assurance is immediately followed by what? Instructions that they had to follow. You shall march around the city, all you men of war. You shall go all around the city once. This you shall do six days. And seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. But the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times. And the priests shall blow the trumpets. It shall come to pass when they make a long blast with the ram's horn. And when you hear the sound of the trumpet that all the people shall shout with a great shout. Then the wall of the city will all fall down flat, and the people shall go up every man straight before him. Now you notice we didn't say this is going to be the power of God in a in a march. This is not going to be a demonstration of the power of God in the blowing of the trumpets. This is the power of God in a shout. Why? Because... Everything had to be accomplished and followed as God directed it to be done. Otherwise, the walls would never have come down. And what was the last thing? What was the final bit of instruction that God gave in order for the walls to come down? Shout. Without the shout, there is no collapse of the walls of Jericho. And so, it would not have been sufficient for the people of Israel to have complied with what Obviously not normal military maneuvers. For anyone who has ever been in battle from the beginning of time until now, no military individual would tell you this whole plan makes perfect military sense. From a military perspective, it's exactly what I would have done. Some general would say, no, he would never say it. Obviously not. Did the people of Israel... Reason though, because they obviously had done some fighting. Did they reason we've never heard anything like this and we're simply not going to do it? Or even if they initially began to comply and ultimately marched around the city for those seven days and finally thought we're beginning, in fact, we are looking foolish to the people who are looking at us over those walls. And enough is enough. There will be no shout. We're going back there would have been no conquering of Jericho because the shout was absolutely essential. And it happened when the people heard the sound of the trumpet and the people shouted with a great shout that the wall fell down flat. Verse 20 of Joshua chapter 6. From a human perspective extremely peculiar to say the very least. And yet it's what God chose. It's what God chose. But also he said, I have given you the city, now here's what you do to take it. Then when they did what he said, was it still a gift? Well, of course it was, because what he told them to do could in no way have caused them to come away from that battle saying, look what we did. Look at how strong our voices were. Our voices were so strong together, we brought down those walls. It was some sort of reverberation issue. And we were able to do it ourselves. No, God made sure that the glory would belong to him. Just as he made sure the glory would belong to him in the use of the staff that Moses had in his hand. Just as he assured the glory would belong to him in the brazen serpent because it was what God said to do, and the people had to comply. And then come with me to Second Kings chapter 5 and see the power of God in a stream. The power of God in a stream. You're familiar with Naaman, the leper, the commander of the army of the king of Syria. He was a great and honorable man in the eyes of his master. A great and honorable man. Because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria, he was also a mighty man of valor, but a leper. And you're familiar with the fact that he learned of the prophet in Israel, but he initially sent to the king, and the king sent back and said, I can't do anything for you. In fact, he tore his clothes. The king did when he read the letter. Am I God to kill and make alive that this man sends a man to me to heal him of his leprosy? Therefore, please consider and see how he seeks a quarrel with me. He thought it was some sort of ploy. Some sort of setup. He's going to ask me to heal him of his leprosy. He knows I can't do it. And then when I can't do it, then we could be under attack. But Elisha heard about it, verse 8. And so he sent to the king and said, why have you torn your clothes? Let him come to me, and he shall know that there is a prophet in Israel. And so Naaman went, and you remember that he became very furious because Elisha didn't even come out initially and personally to meet him, but he sent a messenger to him saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored to you, and you shall be clean. Now God obviously revealed to the prophet what the instructions should be. But Naaman, as Many, from a human perspective, would have surmised. Naaman was expecting some ceremonial kind of situation, something with a great deal of pomp and circumstance and the waving of his hands over the place, and I thought he would do this or that. Behold, I thought. That's the whole problem. Behold, I thought. And yet, his servants finally, after he went away furious... They finally pleaded with him, reasoned with him, and said, if he had told you to do some great thing, wouldn't you have done it? Well, he's told you to do something very simple. It may not be logical to you, but he's told you to do something simple. Why don't you just do it? And so he listened, and he did. And when he came up the sixth time, he was beginning to see that he was being cured, right? No. When he came up after dipping six times, there's no indication there was any change whatsoever. Why would we have expected a change after six dips? When God, through Elisha, had said seven. And so after he had dipped six times, maybe from a human standpoint, he might have been expecting to see a gradual change, but he didn't. Did that cause him to say, my servants are standing over here on the shore. I'm a big man in the Syrian army. And here I am out here in the middle of this stream of water, dipping, and I am beginning to look foolish to those that are under my authority. So nothing has happened after six. I'm out of here. No, he dipped seven times. And the seventh time, just as Elisha had said, what happened? He came forth completely cleansed of his leprosy power of God in a stream, a very peculiar place, but then we see the power of God in a sacrifice, and that brings us back closer to where we began, began, doesn't it, with Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 1, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, to those who, from a human perspective, cannot understand why this would be important, why the preaching of the gospel of Christ, about the sacrifice of Christ, and the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, and everything that's involved with obeying the gospel, why would that be significant? But Jesus made it significant in his own words as he lived in John 12:32. He said, and, if, and I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. What is that a reference to? His being lifted up on the cross. That is the way God chose to bring about the salvation of mankind. The salvation of mankind when mankind will what? Not consider such a thing foolish, not simply reason from a human perspective, but trust God and comply with the conditions of the one who died on Calvary in order to come away cleansed. Just as those in Israel had to look at that brazen serpent in order to live, we must look to the cross, the one who was lifted up there, in order to live. And the way we look to him is through obedience to his word. In John three fourteen, Jesus makes it abundantly clear that there was something in that brazen serpent that was looking forward to the lifting up of Christ. Listen to it. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And then the golden text of the Bible is next, as we call it, for God so loved the world, that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That's what God has chosen. And unless man complies with the condition set forth there, by the one who was lifted up on Calvary, there will be no cleansing and can be no cleansing. And it's interesting to point out, obviously, and highly imperative to understand that the only way to benefit from the sacrifice on Calvary is through a stream. Mm -hmm. Through a stream. What stream, so to speak? baptism he who believes and is baptized will be saved mark 16 16 oh yes belief but not belief alone is essential and that's where it all has to begin i tell you no or rather he says unless you believe that i am he you will die in your sins john 8 24 and then repentance must follow that is a change of mind and a change of life i tell you no but unless you repent you will all likewise perish luke 13 3 and then confession of christ is essential whoever confesses me before men him will i confess before the father who is in heaven whoever denies me i'll deny him matthew 10:32 and 33 and yes then mark 16:16 16, 16, he who believes and is baptized will be saved oh yes god over time has chosen various ways through a staff and a serpent and a shout and a stream and then a sacrifice, but we only avail ourselves of the benefits of the sacrifice through baptism where the blood of Christ is reached to cleanse us from our sins. Now finally go back with me to 1 Corinthians 1 and let's pick up after verse 25 where we stopped with verses 26 through 31. and the things which are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. That's a significant statement, that no flesh should glory in his presence. The use of all these things we've talked about should have fully ensured that no flesh would glory in God's presence because the way God used these things, it was so obvious that it was God and his power. Not the power of a staff, not the power of a brazen serpent, not the not the power in the in the shout of a great many people, not the power of the stream, the Jordan River, which caused Naaman to say, "The rivers Abana and the Farfar, they're finer rivers," and you're telling me I'm going to dip in this thing? You see, God did all that that no flesh should glory in His presence, but then He. Continues, But of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. And think about baptism in regard to that statement. That no flesh should glory in his presence, that we should glory in the Lord. And yet there are myriads of people today who tell us that when we come out of the watery grave of baptism, that is something that we have done to try to work out our own salvation, earn it, that is. And yet it's one of those very simple things that God chose so that when we do come out of the waters of baptism, we cannot dare say, look what I've just done. But we are compelled to say, look what God has done through this very simple submissive act in which I was willing to participate in order to reach the blood of His only begotten Son. Have you reached that blood? If not, we plead with you to do so in the only way you can and to know the forgiveness that comes from the cleansing blood of Christ because the only place God is going to apply it is in the water of baptism where not the water but the blood itself is reached to cleanse you. Just as everyone had to comply with what may have been seemingly foolish things in the mind of man, in all these examples we have cited, God has placed the blood of his Son in a burial in water. And until you reach it, there can be no forgiveness of sins. Oh yes, it's not baptism alone but a belief that leads you to repent, confess, as we've said, and then to be buried in baptism, and then to rise, giving glory to God, and not to yourself for what you've just achieved by a simple submissive act. If you've done those things, but you know you haven't lived in accordance with the will of God and need to come home to your first love, the avenue home for the wayward child is one of repentance, confession of public sin publicly, and prayer to God. Simply saying, I have sinned. Pray with me, brethren. And God will forgive and we will pray with you as we stand to sing. Will you come?